everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Movie Mumble, our monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and I'm joined, as always, by my probably human friends, Joel Lewis (laughs) and Tim Gerard. I am not a robot. (laughs) Uh, uh, This is the middle of our favorite films cycle, in which we each pick our favorite films. Uh, Joel brought us The Fugitive last month, and this month I bring you Blade Runner. Uh, The overarching idea of Movie Mumble, for those of you who haven't listened before, is that every month we get together, pick a film, and then talk about it. And we just take turns picking. It's really that simple. From there on, we uh, see where the conversation leads us, whether that's talking about the film and its production, or or talking about something completely unrelated. Which which is is not rare. Um, (laughs) There typically aren't any rules for what films we can choose, the purpose being that we want to introduce each other to things we might not otherwise watch or just special things we want to share. But for this set of three, this cycle, we decided to kick off our second full year of podcasts by picking our favorite films. Uh, And uh, this month was my turn, and I picked the original Blade Runner, uh, specifically the final cut. Those of you who are Blade Runner fans know what that means. For those of you who don't, don't worry. We'll explain. <laughs> and those of you who are Scott fans know that the specific cut of a film chosen by Scott is very important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Usually. I mean, yeah. No, I know. Most of the I films do. I own that have multiple cuts, the cuts are very different from each other, mm-hmm. so... I'm just thinking so. the last thing that we watched yeah, that that's you chose true. was Johnny Don Darko, Darko, which had a very specific another, cut. That's our problem, yeah. Uh, next will be Alien, in which I'll, again, agonize uh-huh. over which cut to show you. Um, but anyway, so yes, Blade Runner. Um, Joel has brought us his delightful uh, Two-Face coin, yeah. that's how I continuously think about it, but it is a glorious silver dollar. Uh, since I picked this month, I'll be flipping it, and Tim will be calling it, Okay. and the winner will get to choose who... Uh, who gets to slash who has to describe the film mm. <laughs> alright ready boys heads 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 it is what do you say Tim I think I'm going to try to describe this one I feel like I haven't done one in a while <laughs> <laughs> um, I took notes but not about the plot <laughs> <laughs> well I also want to add sort of some of I, I've had an interesting Super uh, welcome to the Tim Hour. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, then I'll be quiet for like forty-five minutes. No, it's about minutes. Damn time as, as for usual. the Tim Hour. <laughs> uh. um, <clears throat> well, no, it, I, I, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I feel like I can kind of more accurately describe this film, as opposed to, you know, when I first watched it, um, before Scott let me borrow and watch this cut, and it was just I remember for the longest time thinking like, why, why does everyone make a big deal out of this film? Like, I don't get it. Like, it's it's fine, and I get, like, it looked cool for its time. Um, but, I mean, mm-hmm. I think a big part of it is knowing Scott and getting to understand the whole noir genre. Even oh, better. thank you. So, so that's a big part of it is, like, I feel like if, you, if you're if you not kind Y'all of aware of these different... can't see it, listeners, different... but I'm grinning like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, if you're not aware of these sort of, like, noir tropes, you know, and, and watching them sort of unfold as you're watching this film is just kind of like, okay, yeah, who, who cares about that? Why is this a thing? What, mm-hmm. You know, what is it, you know? Um, but anyway, plot-wise, so it's in the future. Um, by future, I mean next year. <laughs> November of 2019 19. is when the movie takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are these things called replicants, which are like, you know, androids that, you know, look human. And um, so, but, but they're, they're, they're kind of more powerful than humans, so they could be very dangerous. So if any of them escape, they have these Blade Runners who are supposed to go catch them and just kill them um and retire them, retire them right mm-hmm. not execute them retire them 
Um, <clears throat> so they sort of pull, um, you know, they pull uh, this this one Blade Runner, Deckard, who's like, you know, the Harrison Ford character. Um, Who, literally played by Harrison Ford. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not just right, the, the Harrison the Ford type Harrison character. Ford, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, there, there, so there are four of them on the loose, and the police department wants him to go to go, you know, stop them, go retire them. So a, a large part of the, the movie is, you know, or the, the overall part is plot is like, yeah, you have to go find these four replicants and kill them. And that's sort of yeah. what gets the ball rolling. And then it's... We see it gets, Deckard's detective work. Right? Yeah, yeah. We get to see that sort of yeah. like, oh, here's this this one little picture that something about this on a hunch, I'm going to investigate this picture and it leads to this clue for him to find one of them. And mm-hmm. um, and maybe that was part of it again, like when I first watched this, kind of watching this unfold, it was just kind of like, you know, like why do we spend so much time with this guy just hanging out in his apartment drinking, you know? But, <laughs> but again, like that's sort of a very noir atmosphere that it creates, yeah. you know? Um, <clears throat> so then, you know, one by one he starts to chip away at them and then... But in the meantime, we're also getting to see what the replicants are doing. Right. And um, there are... One of the things that, you know, in addition to... Oh, that's one thing I forgot to mention. They have sort of a a, um, a lifespan built into them of four years. Mm. So, so because that's because of... Uh, they begin to develop emotions. Oh, that, as oh they like, age. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the idea is that if, you know, if they kind of just were able to run rampant, it's like, oh, you know, these could be more powerful and take it. So at least there's this failsafe of, okay, they're going to die, and then yeah. that's it. So they're kind of, some of them are trying to, you know, find a way to prolong their life because they don't want to die. You know, they know enough about being alive to know that they don't want to die. And, you know, the idea of that, yeah, that living in fear of death kind of thing. And, um, <clears throat> so that's part of what they're doing is, they're, you know, they're trying to, get back to their maker and be like hey is there a way to fix this you know so that that sort of plays itself out on the the more major replicants while the sort of minor sub replicants are being dealt with by Deckard um and then also throwing into the mix this other woman who doesn't know she's a replicant but she actually is and you know they sort of end up having this connection um and yeah, I'm trying to. And so that's the thing is, it, you know, maybe this is part of it too. Why I had a hard time. Like, if someone asked me, you know, especially beforehand, like, well, what is it about? And it's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just like it's basically like almost like a cop and robbers kind of story. You know, again, <laughs> yeah. like it's got this very, very simplistic little, you know, yeah. There's the there's the private dick, and then there's the police department who's like, hey, you're outside the law, yeah. but we need you to do this thing. And then this there's the dame who comes in, and I need your help. You know, it's got all. It these... has a similar problem to Skycrawlers, which was our second film mm-hmm. and that if i tried to describe it to you it takes a long time i've spoiled half the film and it sounds dumb right but if we sit down and watch it and let it piece out in front you know yeah let it assemble piece by piece in front of you it all comes together into a coherent whole right and, and that's i think that's definitely part of it too is it's it's almost i don't want to say it's not about the plot because the plot is an impo- is important and has a lot of a lot of points to it and a lot of um you know a lot of metaphor that's really cool but, but it is very visual, you know, so to sit and watch it and see these scenes and be immersed in the world, you know, like, you know, it, it is very much a visual art. It's not just that the the movie genre is a vehicle for telling the story. Like, the visual aspect is, you know, maybe in some sense more of a percentage of what the film is about than the story, than the narrative. Mm-hmm. In, like a lot of good films, the setting is its own character. Right. In, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, and yeah, and again, I guess not to, to give the plot, you know, um, well, no, in terms of how, yeah, how it yeah, ends, mm-hmm. you know, he, 
you know, Deckard ends up confronting the last two and kills one of them, but then the last one is kind of the, the leader, you know, uh, Rutger Hauer's character, and he's kind of messing with him the whole time, and at the very end ends up actually saving his life before he kind of, you know, right before he has his final moment. The soliloquy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's this very, you know, the, the, <clears throat> the source of the quote, like, you know, like, like, like tears, tears and rain, rain. you know. Um, so, yeah, so you get this very kind of, very complex ending where, you know, through the whole thing, you're like, okay, these replicants are the villains and he's the good guy trying to save him. And then you're at this yeah. point where it's like, okay, he could just let him fall and, he, and instead Rutger Hauer catches him and, you know, saves him to kind of give him, you know, almost as if, you know, I think it's part of the point where he's saying like, you know, these eyes have seen things you can't imagine and they'll all be lost once I die. So maybe it was this sense of, well, wait, if I tell this guy, then maybe my legacy can live on beyond my life, you know, which I feel like is also a very human thing, you know. I'm going to have kids so I can tell them all my dumb stories, and then when I die, they can tell my dumb stories to their kids, you know. Um, but yeah, like, you know, maybe that was a last-ditch effort to to hold on to this idea of being alive in that sense. If I can, if someone knows my story and mm-hmm. can kind of, you know, see me, as like oh okay you were kind of like a person you had experiences of your own you know um that it's a way to kind of cheat death in that sense you know kind of like being a composer you're like oh maybe after i die my music will stick around and people listen to it and you know it's a way of gaining some sense of immortality um but yeah and then he runs off with his with his lady with the dame quote unquote (laughs) who is also a replicant um And that's sort of yeah, that's sort of where the where the film ends is like okay, like they he's, head off he's to done. an uncertain future, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but if you want to find out about that future, watch Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Right. <laughs> but yeah, the end there is is that she's also a replicant, like you mentioned. She didn't know it at first, but learns mm-hmm. it over the course of the film. So she, by by learning that and leaving the Terrell Corporation, she she's becomes a rogue replicant, and she gets added to Decker's list. Replicants to kill right, to retire. Yeah. Oh, there are four more left. No, right. there are three. No, no there are no, four. four. She's the new one, right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the film, he chooses to leave with her instead, and uh, instead of you know kill her. Mm-hmm. And uh, the elevator door closes on them, and the credits roll. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Yeah. So. Which I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I also no, feel like that's is that. Yeah. <laughs> is probably a, you know a, again like a, a very noirish ending. You know mm-hmm. this sort of like. Okay, we you know we kind of we just barely made it through this case, and now what are we gonna do? Oh, let's go! I feel like you it's know, what it's Roman like... Polanski did really well with Chinatown, mm-hmm. but did kind of poorly in Ghost Rider. Oh, okay. <laughs> that style of ending of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. I just yeah, I love that. I know we've talked in person about ambiguity before, mm-hmm. and not necessarily ambiguity, but just small ambiguities within a non-ambiguous film mm-hmm. that leaves certain bits open to interpretation that yeah. create different experiences. Blade Runner is very good at that. Mm-hmm. Well, I also like, too, that the, the ending isn't so ambiguous, but what, what I found mm-hmm. is, like, yeah. like I guess it's, yeah, I mean... Like, I it's mean, not a, did they, you know, did he take her off to kill her somewhere? Like, we know he's running away with right. her. Right, yeah. Right, but, but that we don't know what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> we don't but I feel know. like more of that, like, that open-ended ending, mm. it... it it, 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 I feel like it makes you think about it That's more. A better it, phrase. You know, it makes it more more realistic in a sense because it's like, you know, like when you see, oh, they lived happily ever after, credits roll. 
it's like okay like i'm done with that their story like i don't care what happens after this because you resolved it whereas here it's setting you up for oh what's their life going to be like after and then you think about that you, you know um i remember the first the first show that really did that to me was angel at the end and that season finale where they're about to start this big battle and angel's like i kind of want to fight the dragon and then credits roll it's like what what the hell but like that 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 episode was like on my mind for like a week straight like i couldn't stop thinking about it and i was like afterwards being like wow that was fucking brilliant like Mm -hmm. you made me think about your show instead of going okay i'm gonna stop thinking about this because it's done now move on to something else like i couldn't get it out of my mind you know and, uh, you know, maybe that has, has this sort of had that, or did it have that effect on you, Scott, until 2049 came I, out and kind of answered that question? I, you know, not, no, I, not necessarily the ending. Mm-hmm. I didn't spend my time thinking about that. I spent my time picking over the film mm-hmm. and just constantly re-experiencing it, mm-hmm. diving back in. So why don't you tell us about how it came into you? Like, your first viewing, yeah, how does this um, cement itself? I'm, I'm actually really having trouble recalling my first viewing. I, because it was so long ago and I want to say Blockbuster okay. and I don't know if I picked it up just because Harrison Ford and the title was Blade Runner and it looked cool mm-hmm. or or because maybe just because my mom or dad or whoever had heard of it and they were you know working through movies in Blockbuster with me and was like sure why not but it just I just loved it I lo- that I think Blade Runner was probably my first noir of any kind actually oh. and I really loved the the pacing and the, the way the plot unfolded and that the film took its time to just let characters express within a scene and move around and it let the lighting I mean the, the whole set design and lighting just ooh hit me like a sack of bricks it was great mm-hmm. and I loved it and I I can't for the life of me even remember which version I watched first because there are there are like five versions of this film but but the only thing we need to note is that the US theatrical release has a really crappy tacked on epilogue um, that the other versions do not have I don't oh, so I mean what is that? maybe the maybe the European version has it but you know I it, that's the the biggest change there are some other smaller changes that's the biggest one that's most important and I the epilogue is them it's showing awful. them driving out in the kind of shoes. So, Not even right? driving. It's a hel- it's the excess helicopter shots from the opening of The Shining. Is that what it is? That they cut in and and Harrison Ford narrates a happily ever after for them. Oh god. And that's Jesus. it. I, it's and I anyway, I want to say that was my first version. But once I got the box set which comes with every version, I went and watched through them all and when I reached that epilogue I thought, wait a second, I've never seen this before. So I, anyway, the point is, uh, at this point, I've seen them all. But, um, I just, I, I don't know. I just, I liked it. I liked. It was enough for noir. It was sci-fi, but it wasn't like Star Wars. Really, just throw crazy technology at us. It was very sort of near future. Everything looks familiar, just iterated upon, to be like this is a future I could see one day, um, which was I think my first exposure to that kind of sci-fi as opposed to the typical sort of Star Wars sci-fi. You were saying um, the branding seemed to be a that's, big component. I want to bring that up later, yeah. Maybe not later as in like in 60 seconds here. But um, I just, yeah, just everything clicked. And then as I got older and watched it and unfolded more about the plot and had more to unpack and more to pick up on, and I just found more and more and more to see every time I watched the film. You know, more, more bits and pieces, more information, more cool theories. So... I, I don't know I 
I'm having trouble explaining why it's my favorite film. It just is. Everything <laughs> about it, I, I just love it. If, if you gave me a magic wand and said, fix one problem with any film on Earth, like, you know, physics and the real world, not even, doesn't matter, just anything you want, all I'd do is I'd smooth out one of the cuts in Blade Runner, where they cut two shots together. Which one? When he's being confronted by Leon, and the and gun pops out of his hand. Yep. Yeah, that's they had to cut two. That, that's it. That's all I'd do. I wouldn't make any other changes to Blade Runner, and I'd forsake other films to make Blade Runner just that little bit better because I love it that much. So there's my testimonial. But um, <laughs> so thank you, Joel. You reminded me that Blade Runner is covered in branding: Coca-Cola, Atari, Pan, Pan Am, <laughs> etc. But um, that's something that also my favorite sci-fi author and favorite author period. Uh, William Gibson does that these futures are all they start with a near future and then extrapolate that into a far future so the far future is full of real life familiarity um, you know when we see the Coca-Cola ad even though it's on this ginormous neon that flying cars are moving past it's still Coca-Cola like we can tell uh, even when we see the blimp overhead with the ads for the off-world colonies it feels like an advertisement like your typical you know pick up and go and have a brighter future it, it's things we've seen in real life just with a new coat of future paint and that helps Grimy, dirty Los Angeles in, future yeah in this case <laughs> and that you know the screens are different the colors are weirder the, there are flying cars um, spinners they are in this film um, etc but like it, it definitely feels like the world evolved naturally out of the one we see around us does that make sense mm. um, that's something that Gibson is really good at and something that Blade Runner did really really well and that that uh I don't know I like that kind of sci-fi especially it really clicks. Um, although of course you run the risk of of a brand problem like in this case Pan Am and uh, I, saw, I saw another TWA are both airlines we see in the background in Blade Runner and they are long gone. Right, and Atari is only recently getting it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's not quite the, the it's, it's still around but it's not around the same way it was or anybody thought it would be. Um, you know it really really depends on. Or uh, in a Gibson book, he'll mention, you know, a, a Kodak micro lens for the, the, the camera implants they're building for people. Because, of course, Kodak, photography, right? I mean... They'll be around forever. Yeah, and so, so that, that certainly can help to, to ruin the immersion when, you know, the passage of time sees brands not go the way they were supposed to. But, it, I don't know, it's never hurt me that much. Brands come back all the time under different names or owners, so... Mm -hmm. I, you mentioned you've seen it before, Tim. Mm -hmm. uh, but the first time it didn't stick, and then you saw it again. Is this your second time then, or um, this is third? At least my third, because okay. I did. Because you did let me borrow, and I and you had me oh, watch the yes, same yes. version. So and I prepped I, for twenty forty nine, right? That's, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, we were gonna see the sequel, and you hadn't seen the original. Yeah. Um, I might have seen it. Like I remember seeing it. I think in college with my roommate. And I can't remember if I had seen it either before or after that. Um, and I remember, you know, he, he was he's a big fan of it. And he's um, he's definitely, like, quoted it a bunch. And that was sort of a funny thing, kind of like we were saying with, uh, you know, The Exorcist of, you know, these all these parts come up and you remember back to when you've seen them parodied. It was kind of like that with this. Like, like, I kept hearing him in my head, like, delivering all of Rutger Hauer's lines at the end, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's that part of it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but, uh... But yeah, like it was just kind of like, and, and and maybe part of it's you know you know kind of how you made the comparison, Scott, to to Star Wars, you know, coming out of the being a Star Wars fan, 
where it is kind of like the lasers and the you know super the yeah. x-wings and their fancy flying and right yeah, you know it's and it's like crazy yeah this this technology mm-hmm. that yeah that evolved in a different galaxy like mm-hmm. not from our near future but someone else's well, it's the old like technically. advanced yeah. technology is just magic let's do cool stuff you know right. sort of yeah. thing like at some point someone's going to figure out how to do everything yeah but it also happened thousands of years ago so we've sort of you know, normalized all this interesting mm-hmm. stuff. And I love it. I mean, I love that kind of sci-fi is also great, mm-hmm. let's be clear. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, like, I think that, maybe, and maybe part of it's because I didn't have a lot of exposure to different types of sci-fi. Mm. Um, so it was just kind of like, that was that was it for me, you know. And, and that's the thing, too, is the more I think about it, the more I don't have certain specific genres that I like. It's more just, like, pieces from here and there. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not a fan of just sci-fi. There are a few sci-fi movies I really like. Mm-hmm. But anyway... So yeah, this one would just kind of seemed very, yeah, very drab, kind of like okay, and and I I got that they were going for this, um, this you know th- yeah this realism this 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 futurism of a of a realistic, you know near future extrapolated like you said, um, and there were things about that that I kind of noticed and appreciated, um, but I think oh that's what it was. Part of what I think what threw me off about this film is I had seen a bunch of other films that are based on Philip K. Dick books, mm. and they do deal with a lot of like you know the main character not being who they think they are a scanner darkly yeah and, um, um uh what uh um adjustment bureau. total recall we can remember it for you yeah wholesale, paycheck you know yeah like like almost everything even like in, in <laughs> yeah there was a while actually when i was at working at blockbuster where i dug deep into all these other lesser known stories um there's one with peter weller i think called screamers um but there's a that, ton yeah. of them. Um, Imposter with I think Gary Sinise and Vincent D'Onofrio. Like there are a bunch of like straight to video ones that came mm-hmm. out. I think around the time it was around the time he had another one that I think oh I think around the time Minority Report came out, which is also one of his. Oh yeah. There were a bunch of like straight to video ones that that came out or were kind of being re released like on that hype. Right. And so many of them have that big thing where you're kind of going along and all of a sudden you know you have this you have this twist of like oh hey you're not actually who you think you are you're a clone of the person you think you are like what you know and it's like there's you know that ties in which in some ways maybe gives credence to the theory that Deckard is a replicant you know Mm -hmm. if him being the main character and having this you know this um I guess you know following sort of the form of the other Philip K. Dick films that I've seen that would have been where this is going but then it, it doesn't and they don't really even kind of you know, like you were saying, there are theories that he is, and yeah, that's that's the big argument, yeah. if you will, is he is or he isn't. Yeah, um, which, like, you know, I almost and, and that's sort of my thing. Is and I with almost, that one sentence know. alone, I made everyone listening furious yeah. because <laughs> the rest of them, it's <laughs> no, 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 he is, he is right, yeah. or obviously, obviously he, he isn't. isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so me saying that there are two sides just made them all angry. <laughs> but, um, but but yeah, so that was I think one of the biggest things that I because once I found out it was based on a, a Philip K. Dick story, I was like, oh, this is gonna. Have, you know, and, and and then it kind of didn't really. It just kind of had this like way more kind of even keel, you know, and and you know, and maybe or maybe even that was part of it at the time where I was like, oh, I bet you he's we're gonna find out he's a replicant. And then you don't. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So I guess he isn't. Uh, uh, so yeah. So that that sort of aspect of of what I knew of his storytelling didn't didn't translate. And and I've never read, um, you know, the do. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. I've never read it, so I don't know the differences maybe in that story. I think Joel, you said... Lots of differences. Oh, so both of you read it. Okay. So maybe different. you guys can speak to that at some it's point. It's like the basic concept was made into a film. Okay. And most of the lo- 
the setting of the book was kept, and then not much else. Okay. okay. It's, it's, um, so, yes, I think that was one of the things that, you know, and, and maybe, you know, un, unfairly so, I felt, like, disappointed by it because mm-hmm. it, it, didn't, it didn't deliver what I was expecting it to mm-hmm. deliver because of the Philip K. Dick name. Um, We've but, talked before on this podcast about how much that can hurt mm-hmm. when you go into a film expecting something else. Yeah. Even no matter, no matter how good what you actually get is, you're always left disappointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is interesting, as big a fan of metaphor as you are, as this being a huge metaphor about identity, mm-hmm. right? Like the idea of... Humanity. Humanity, or more human than human, right? Because that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's what Roy more does. More human than human is He actually, he kills his god when he discovers that he cannot live beyond his life, so there's no afterlife mm-hmm. for him. So the way he spends his time after that is mourning for his lover... And then living it, in the moment and toying with Deckard. There's this, so this it's drive this... for them throughout the film to, to do what they want for the people they care about. But at the end, after he kills Tyrell, which is also sort of an overflowing of these emotions, and Roy is the, the replicant who we've seen deal with emotions best throughout the film, and they sort of overcome him in that moment. After that, he doesn't. his malice sort of just goes because his purpose is gone. He can't save his loved ones anymore. He can't get any more life for himself. It's not it's literally impossible. Not that there's, you know, someone else to talk to or someone to get just impossible. So instead of killing Deckard, which he totally could have done, he decides to try to impart what he knows. Well, I mean, it's this idea I think he's embodying this idea of like living presently. Mm-hmm. Cuz what he decides to do cuz he wants to kill Deckard because he killed Pre. Right, Prince Zora. Right, Prince Zora. Uh-huh. So, but the way he goes about it is he he's having fun with it. Yeah. He's toying with him because he doesn't have. It's this kind of like nihilistic. Well, if the, not if I'm going to die soon, mm-hmm. and there's no way of extending, and I have no thing else to live for, I might as well have fun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then and when he, he gets to the to... point where he kills is going to kill him, it's like, well, now what do I do after that? Why would I? Right. Why would I? And it's also he, 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 he wants has to impart. This, life into Deckard. Yeah, this idea he wants to of make him the feel and fear and, and etc. Which is something that Leon touches on briefly during the confrontation with Deckard. And Leon says, you know, it's quite a thing to live in fear, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's what Roy says to Deckard later. Quite something to live in fear. Mm-hmm. That's the life of a slave. You know, he wants to sort of free Deckard from the slavery he's been in of his own fear. And see, I think something that Deckard learns from that is that in the end, it doesn't matter if he's a replicant or not to him. Because he makes Real the decision. Life, real, yeah. What what he wants to do is be with Rachel. Yeah. So that's the decision he makes, and that's the line that he goes but What on. matters is what we live. Right? right. Real or not. Okay. No, it's, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. That's one of the many master strokes of the sequel, that people were wondering if they were going to settle a debate about whether Harrison Ford was a replicant or not. Mm-hmm. And they don't, which I, I'm super happy about. Um... But the closest we come is a line, some point, Harrison Ford is in there, he says to the Jared Leto, the big bad, he says something like, I know what's real. Be- and it's, it touches on what you just said, Joel, about what's real for him, what matters to him. Mm-hmm. That what's replicant or not doesn't matter. What is or isn't real doesn't matter. What we, what we make, what we choose, right. the lives we live. That kite over beautifully. Mm-hmm. I also sorry, feel like that. The, the, the thing you were saying about, yeah, like when he, he could kill Deckard, but he chooses not to. I also feel like that falls under the category of more human than human. 
Because I feel like most humans in that situation would choose the petty option, be like, I'm going to let you die because you killed my girlfriend. See, but that's what I mean yeah. about after he killed Tyrell. Like, any, all the stuff he does up till that moment is motivated by his need to save himself and the ones he loves. Mm-hmm. That, that purpose that justifies what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So when he gets to Tyrell, he could, I mean, he could just turn around and walk out. But he doesn't. He kills Tyrell. And that's part, like you said, it's part, what's the term for, like, goddesside? Not regicide. The, anyway, deicide? it's part deicide. deicide. Thank you, Tim. It's part deicide. But it's part part just emotional outpouring. This, this, the grief, the suffering they've been through. There's nothing more for them. Nothing mm-hmm. else coming. And it overcomes him and he kills Tyrell. But afterward, you know, he, he has no more purpose anymore. Killing Deckard won't get him any life it won't get any of his loved ones back. It won't get him any closer to answers. That purpose has gone, and therefore his need to do, to do his justification has has gone. He sees Deckard then as someone who was doing his job, stopping them from doing exactly what they did, which was run around and murder people. Right. <laughs> so, so he takes his revenge for the two replicants Deckard killed, not for Leon, who Deckard didn't kill. Oh right, because Rachel killed him mm-hmm. by by yanking out a couple of Deckard's fingers that's his you know mm. he needs to do something to, to communicate that grief and fury to the man who caused it but it's a measured response and it's, it's much more toned down that we, we see Roy sort of come to terms with his emotions throughout the film as a replicant mm-hmm. because at first he doesn't seem to have many he's just cold and you know, did you get your precious photos like he doesn't seem to care about but there's this odd Everything childlike quality focus. about him, too. Yes, absolutely. I, I feel like about he's all very... the replicants. Because there's one... What was the... He has, like, this little kid grin about something yeah. really early in the film. They have this remember. strange curiosity about the world around them. I mentioned we see two... Excuse me, two of them, like, sniff something. Experimentally, mm-hmm. almost like a dog. They're just... They're, they're always exploring and learning. And emotionally, they are like Tozen as well. Because replicants don't have emotions to start. And they start to develop them, and that's why the lifespan is there. And the replicants in question are reaching the end of that lifespan. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> so dog interaction, what you were saying about acting like a dog, they also treat, um, I'm blanking on his name, the engineer, the Bad, toy maker. Uh, Sebastian. Sebastian. JF Sebastian. He talks, or Roy talks to him like a dog. Stay. Yeah. Come back. Like, the way he interacts with him in Tyrell's presence is this real master-dog relationship, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, it's incredible. And so we see them start to to understand, and that's where where Roy's emotions get the better of him in Tyrell's uh, home. And then afterwards, he sort of has this, both this mastery of them and this strange childlike sense of wonder at what he can feel and see and do what living is it's it's great his his body language in every scene is phenomenal something i really found interesting was that each of the per- people who had a hand in creating him right we we have the eye tech uh, and I then we him. have sebastian and then and we have Tyrell. Himself. the way that they look at roy it's this almost they're in awe of what they created they see him as this more human than human perfect yeah. thing and he spends so much time tearing it all down well no it's it's more that you built me wrong i can only live 
as this four perfect years? thing for yeah. four years, but they they see him as this testament of like, this is what we could be. This is what we could, pr- could accomplish. This could yeah. be our legacy. It's just really interesting that every interaction, like, once they realize that they're replicants, it's like, I made your eyes. There's yeah. a bit of me in you. Like, the prodigal son coming home. Like, yeah. that was a really interesting... Could, Tyrell calls him the prodigal son. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that that was something, especially with this view, viewing, I was very keyed in on. Because I, I keep seeing, I mean, it's not a, a big leap to see Roy as this Christ figure. I mean, he plunges oh, yeah. a nail through his hand. Like, there's this idea of him being this this martyr, right? Or this mm-hmm. this sacrifice yeah, they, those replicants and Roy in particular, their journey and death is what brings Deckard into the light again. Because when we see him, there's not much going on in his life. He's not even living. He's eating noodles. He's, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's eating noodles. That's it. And he's drinking whiskey, <laughs> drinking a few bottles a day, and uh, and that's it. He, you know, he's not. There's no fear. There's no emotion. You know, he tells Rachel, "Yeah, you're a replicant. It's implants." And then even when she starts to cry, he he rolls his eyes. He goes, "It." It was a bad joke. I was joking. All right, go home. <laughs> like, he's, there's nothing there. But by the end of the film, he is acting. He's feeling again and looking at his own desires and acting for those. That's an interesting progression um, for sure. Yeah, to see so him, he because he's, he's very brusque. Yeah, he, he essentially begins without emotion mm-hmm. and develops it over the course of the film. Well, and that's that's an interesting turn you also see in the first tester who's doing the eye exam with Leon. Holden, yeah. Right, because the way he's acting is like really rude, really cutting him off and all those things. Yeah. And then he kind of, you see a turn in him, he's like, this is meant to get an emotional response out of you. Like, yeah. it, it feels like Deckard takes so long to get out of that mode because that's, that's how he's been operating. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the thing, like when there was no doubt in his mind about his being human, he acted more robotic. Yeah. As it became more and more ambiguous, the humanity comes out comes of out, it. Yeah. It's, and as things become more complicated, too. Mm-hmm. At first it's just, okay, I'm going to kill these and that's going to be the end of the day. But as he learns more about them and has more interactions with Rachel and about what she wants and the police tell him to kill her and if things get more mixed up and he starts to act less out of that straightforward duty and logic mm-hmm. and more out of his own reactions. So I think we need to talk about the rape of Rachel. Yeah. Let's. So, I'm trying to. Th- this, that's the the part of this movie that I can't defend. I don't even like saying it's a product of the time because it's a shitty product of the time. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm, and th- this is n- not a justification for it. But what I'm seeing it is, this is a point in the film where Deckard is doubting his humanity, and he's using Rachel as machine as subordinate to man to human mm-hmm. as this device for vindicating his and it's being one of the human. first times we see him really act emotionally in the film yeah because we're, we're getting close after he kills zora he's goodbying the, the vodka he talks to bryant real quick but then leon shows up and he already kills him and rachel kills leon and saves him and they go back and so this is the first moment we've seen deckard have anything the, other than the Blade Runner Hunter. Well, he has the space for it, right? Because when he's going to get the vodka, mm-hmm. he has this, like, he's... he's You, you can see him. He's, like, he's exhausted. He's like, down, this right. is how I'm going to deal with right. this. And then Edward James Ooh, almost Leon shows up, up, and he has to yeah. adjust. He has to make this shift into work mode again. And then they get into this private space where he can feel like he can 
decompress. See, and and it's it's a parallel to Roy again because Roy throughout the whole film is remarkably unemotional because he's doing the job. But when he gets to Tyrell and he finds there is no answer, his emotions overtake him and they pour out and he kills his creator. Mm-hmm. And so this first time we see Deckard do anything other than be robotic, it, it pours out in this aggressive, uh, primal, just need to act on it, on something other than logic. And so he, he goes after Rachel, mm-hmm. in addition to what you said about to, to confirm his humanity of the well because that's the thing the he machine. knows she's a machine mm-hmm. and the reason the way he talks to her is like you need to say this yeah say I want you say kiss me say all these things yeah. he's inputting into a computer mm-hmm. the thing that's shitty is that it has consciousness it's female and it's a poor like it's yeah. it's 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 he's a, been in the same way that Roy loses control to what goes on the the storm of feeling when his purpose is taken from him and it results in him crushing Tyrell's head Deckard's part loses control but part doesn't which is the uncomfortable part here that he his deep need to have purpose to have reason for existing to have being other than a machine that hunts machines it outpours in this one private moment we've got here it's it's just it's shitty that a female character is so so callously used mm-hmm. as character development for Deckard mm-hmm. in that scene, and it's it's it almost seems it's very out of character for that. I, well, I don't. What's like, really weird? It's what, also a noir thing, mm-hmm. right? The idea of the the private dick who is a certain way with women, and then there's this this kind of power dynamic between. And that's What's, in keeping with the genre. What should make you extra uncomfortable is that that's also the only humanity Rachel has ever actually been shown. Because, you know, she thinks she's human, but it's all implants. And when she's panicking about whether she's a replicant or not, Tyrrell won't even see her. Right. She goes to Deckard because he's the only one she can interact with, the only one she knows, the only person who's there. And so that display of one of the more awful things about humanity is possibly the only actual act of humanity ever performed on her, for all she knows. Mm-hmm. But Deckard is her only connection, her only source of real human interaction. Because everywhere else, to everyone else and everything else, she's just a rogue replicant and she needs to be retired. Mm-hmm. But even when Deckard was you know, being brusque with her, like at the beginning, he at least... It's half hard. It was a bad joke. Here, have a drink. You know, like it's a half hard effort, right? But it is a touch of consideration, mm-hmm. and it's more than any other part of the world will ever show her. Yeah, it's it's just a difficult scene, mm-hmm. and I don't like seeing Harrison Ford do it. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I this he's, is he's such a hero figure for us. Right, it's uncomfortable to watch him do something villainous. Don't watch what lies beneath. <laughs> <laughs> It, it also reminds me too. I get, and it's been a while since I since I read it, and I think I saw the movie. But in the Fountainhead, there's apparently a scene like that, um, and I can't remember the details, but I remember like that was one of the things that that hearing about later, like because um, like the main character Howard Rourke. There's uh, I think her name is is it Dagny Taggart? I think her name is. 
and there was there's a scene like that where and I think it's different from the book and the movie like I think in the book it's much more of just like the the two of them and there is more of a um I feel like it's it's more implied that there's a mutual sense you know and it's more probably more aggressive but also like from both parties whereas I, I think in the movie it's more of just like you know yeah like she's there and he just takes her to bed you know and you know the the you know the way it was filmed and shot and edited and everything it looks way more one-sided and again i can't remember exactly but i know that's another scene similar to that where like a lot of people are just like hey what the fuck like why is why is this main character who you're supposed to be like hey he's this you know we're kind of trying to make him into this not ideal man but he's you know he's all about integrity you know and then you kind of do something like this and it's just like what the fuck like what what is what is this supposed to do is it just you know and like you said not wanting to use the excuse it's a sign of the times but like was it just so normalized back then that people didn't acknowledge that that was rape and they're just like yeah we're gonna have a sex scene but this is how it's gonna play out right. and it's just like well, wait a minute that's not a sex yeah, scene it's where, a rape scene you where know, the like, whole like she wants you to but she's not gonna say it sort of thing was normalized once yeah. upon a time and I well, I mean, I guess that it's still pretty was, normal now. Yeah. yeah, but unfortunately, but yeah, that whole yeah, like oh yeah, she wants him to overtake her. And I mean, it's like, that, well, that, you gotta talk that, about this shit. It's a kink, right? Like, but it's a consensual non consent. That's, yes, that's exactly that's it. the whole it's, thing. Yeah. yeah, it it's so like there are certainly a lot of films from admittedly from Blade Runner's time, but even otherwise that that did that sort of thing just as under the assumption that's like right. oh yeah this is how our sex scene is gonna be wrote. she's gonna yeah. want it like and it's something that's definitely uncomfortable nowadays yeah which is a good thing mm-hmm. well it's almost yeah. like you know I, f- I always feel like in the in the past too it was like that whole like women aren't supposed to like sex and that's why they never admit to it and that's why the guy has to take it from him you mm-hmm. know like I don't know that, that how was long that that's its own its own discussion in the film and TV industry about like I, I don't know where, where things are at the moment on yeah. this, but that you could even get away with showing stuff that was kind of graphic as long as there was no implication that the woman was enjoying it. Right, right. Like, that would get around the censors right. for a remarkably long time, too. Yeah. Um, so, I... And that's, the, like... Yeah. It, it just the sacrifice of a female character for male character development mm-hmm. was frustrating. It's yeah. it, and it's like see that's if Decker's a shitty guy, right? I would argue it's her for her development too, because like I said, it's it's the first act of humanity that, as far as she knows, right? And there's this this idea that like because she is a machine, right? The juxtaposition of female. Yeah. And machine and rape of it, these things. It, it, it just double it, triple reiterates the treatment of replicants as non-human. Right, and also yeah. this For is how you treat time. women too. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Like if you're treating, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's they, they it's, it's, another, it's it serves most, us another parallel too because it's the most pure. Uh, she's an object, literally yeah. in this. It, right. But it, it serves us another mirror too between Roy and Deckard in that Deckard's first. Again, first non-robotic act in the film is awful, but Roy's, you know, final act is nothing but charitable and kind, mm-hmm. and he saves Deckard, and it's a it's a complete reversal for the two of them again. That, again, you know, the robot is more human than the human, as mm-hmm. it were. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about the the sex scene in twenty forty nine. With the um, like overlay on the prostitute and all that jazz, yeah, and like, it it's less it's mostly less rapey. 
depending on what you think about prostitution. Well, um, I mean, like... But it, it occurred to me that they're both awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah, well... For their own reasons. I think... I think like, Blade so, Runner, a Blade Runner movie needs an uncomfortable sex Well, that's the thing. I think that's something that's a good quality of the sequel, is that it keeps the continuity of this is how the robot AI yeah. extension of what Rachel was, the idea of the motherly, matronly, like, take care of you robot that you could also fuck, that continuity comes through from this. Like, that iteration of AI is a direct <laughs> evolution of how the robot female is treated in this one. Mm -hmm. So, like, those continuity strings are strong, but they're shitty strings. And then in 2049, when it turns out that that prostitute is who she is, related to the plot and everything, mm -hmm. like, oh, it's uh, everything. Everything was tied together between the two films so well. Yeah, no, it's got... They really picked up where the other one left off. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Joel, you wrote a lot of stuff down. Let's get yeah, to, Joel, get to a notebook here. Tell us what's on there. Well, I mean, this has one of the greatest opening shots of all time. Yeah. That otherworldly, industrial, landscape. future landscape with mm. the signal flares going off. And it, so, it, I mean... And the eye, shall the eye. Right. And I mean, it comes after, like, the, the description of what Blade Runners are, what yeah. replicants are. I, for films that need exposition to get off the ground, both Blade Runner films do it beautifully. Yeah. Because it's just one... It's like three sentences, yeah. right? It's the future. Replicants are artificial humans. Mm. They're indistinguishable. We use emotion to distinguish them. When they're illegal, Blade Runners go kill them, but we don't call it killing. I, I really Boom, love that film line. starts. I love right. that line about this was not called execution. It's this was called, called retirement. retirement. Like, that just it establishes the tone so well. Yeah. And like, other films might take forever of just characters explaining shit to just mm -hmm. get it to get anywhere. Blade Runner does it with a like, couple sentences. Yeah. And, and it, then you get this gorgeous, like, almost unparalleled now mm -hmm. this idea of like that future landscape being industrial and grimy but also have like this beauty flickering lights this and the, yeah, yeah this yeah, this the spinners flying between the buildings and like a shinescape like it, mm. it's it's very iconic and all like the the pyramid is gorgeous the technology looks I don't know, like, it, it holds up really well. Mm -hmm. And that, that was something I had written that down. Blade Runner was fortunate in that it, it kept a lot of practical effects. Um, practical effects tend to age pretty well. Um, even when they don't, they still age pretty well. I, mm -hmm. By coincidence, I watched Robocop again yesterday. Just I was not thinking ahead to Blade Runner at all. I just wanted to watch Robocop. And, and um, in that too, everywhere they used practical effects is really great, but whatever they did with the giant warbot mm. looks really goofy. And I can't tell how much of that was cutting edge computer tech at the time or just I think practical effects that, that overreached or didn't match what they were otherwise doing. But, um, no sorry, stop, motion yeah, 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 stop motion. Yeah, a lot of But like, compared to some of the earlier efforts at pure computer effects, you know, Blade Runner, Robocop, it all holds up really well. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing and the puppetry we yeah. talked about. that. You know, because computer effects age because we see better ones right. afterwards. You know, we, we play a PS2 and go, oh, this is great. 
Then we play the PS3 and go, wow, this looks so much better, and PS2 looks awful, and the PS4. But for practical effects, for a long time now, they... It they, looks real. They've been it what they like, are. They yeah. are real. You know, it's let's do puppetry, let's do right. models, let's do miniatures. And it's been that... I'm sure there have been improvements and changes made since the 80s in those fields, but they're not necessarily ones that are super immediately obvious the way a high-def shot is from a you know cathode ray TV. Mm-hmm. So when we go back, it still looks good. See, and coming from that first shot, like the lighting in this movie, I'm always struck by how prevalent it is on screen. How aware I am of light. It's on the characters. But it's, it's not dis- it's not in a distracting way. Mm. It it adds this like filter, this layer. Because when, when they're in the, the uh Terrell Corporation pyramid mm-hmm. and the shade comes down from you see the, the sun is going down under this other pyramid and the shade goes down and how much darker and more mysterious that mm-hmm. room becomes. It like cuts off right about at Deckard's mouth. It's right. Like his face is in shadow, but not his chin. And then they bathe uh, uh, Harrison Ford in blue light at certain points, and then just mm-hmm. the flashes. And then the, the when he's in the apartments looking around, and there's like the ceiling fan flicker coming right. through the windows because of something across the street. Or and whatever. you get that that side shine come through in the shadow, and then the particulate dust that's moving through it. Mm-hmm. And then you have the the. Um, uh, T- television screen blimp coming through scenes sh- shattering light. New and life in the off-world colonies. Yeah. Right. That and constant reminder literally above everyone's heads the thing they crane up to look at. That you're down that here you're and down you could here, be up Life there. could be better. Yeah. Right. Come, join us for a new life in the off-world colonies. And I mean the 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 real like landmark of lighting in this is the um Clear jumpsuit or a clear raincoat. Clear raincoat that Zora wears through the um, broken windows. The windows or the glass walls of the um, mall, Mm -hmm. right? Like that. She gets shot, and the blood like streams down the inside of her clear raincoat because it catches everything. And that's something that the the skill to get those on frame, the how the light hits and. It's just something that could just look like white out, right? Like mm-hmm. the the skill it would take to make that meticulously shot lighting work. I it, I was thinking this time watching it, it reminds me of the um, sniper fight in uh, Skyfall when he comes up oh, in yes. that glass building. That was where beautiful, the, the, right? So, and that's something that had to have been inspired the, by this because it's yeah. a similar. You, you keep seeing these the clear neon frames. and shadow and yeah yeah it, oh. it just <laughs> good stuff the lighting budget on this movie must have been insane like I, I I don't know how you create such and that's the thing like usually good components of a film are good in that they are not distracting you're not noticing them actively but in this the lighting almost acts as another character mm-hmm. and it, to the like it enhances all these yeah. different... I, it, it was... I, this film is a huge reason why I'm a sucker for other films nowadays with the set and the lighting and the art and all, like, things like The Neon Demon and Drive mm-hmm. and um, Ghost in the Shell, even, which, I mean, it a bit is also super sci-fi, so maybe that's cheating a little, but just that whole sense of letting us breathe in the place the film is taking place in, it all, it all comes from this for me. <laughs> it all comes from Blade Runner. Yeah. This idea that I should feel like I'm there. That's the thing. Like lighting is usually a color in the painting of the film that is not all that 
it, it contributes to it, it gives it form, yeah, it's but it's just not, not always so. It's not so pronounced. So it's pronounced, the, not at the forefront of right. my mind. I, I don't know if I know of another film that has the lighting so front and center like this. Yeah. And speaking, if I could pivot into sound, yeah, um, you know, yeah, like when that scene you mentioned when Zora's getting shot and breaking through the shop windows, and like up till now we've heard everything in that chase scene. We hear the cars passing by and the people on bicycles and the chatter and the you know cross now, cross now mm-hmm. symbol and. And we hear everything that Deckard can hear as he pursues her through this crowded place. And some stuff fades in and fades out as it gets closer to or farther from him, but it's this noisy place. And then, you know, move! Get down! He pulls up his gun, and everything else fades out, except for the gunshots and the glass breaking. Everything else falls away, Mm -hmm. except for the death of Zora. And it's it's great. And when and you're talking about the photo enhancer, that that sound design is such a just really satisfying. Uh, every time I think about photo enhancement or examination of something, I, it, those noises are there. Mm. They're always there. Right. That's what Photoshop should have is like that kind of interface. <laughs> Someone that. somewhere must have made a point right. where skin for Photoshop, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. gotta be real. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's such. It's such. It holds up so well, from a cinematic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like I, it, it, there's some unparalleled shots in this. Yeah, I, certainly. And for me, at least, it holds up also just as an enjoyable film. No, it is. Um, it is. Oh uh, yeah, not 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 accusing you of saying mm-hmm. it wasn't, but I mean that we've talked touched briefly before upon how classics, when you go back and watch them, and then are bored because the things that it did first are now normal right. or because the parts that were memorable were to do with you know cinemagraphically not necessarily the plot or what have right. you like um like apparently the jazz singer one of the first commercially successful talking films or the first maybe anyway i hear about it mentioned as you know early talking film success but no one i've know who's watched it has said it was good right does that make sense I think so it's like the it's, element of blackface that's in it uh, maybe I haven't seen help. it, but um, you know the point being that sometimes these classics are not necessarily enjoyable anymore. Right. But they're classic for their impact. Right. Um, I think Blade Runner holds up in both ways. No, for sure, especially when you get. <laughs> I forget the the interplay between Tyrell and Roy. Yeah. Every time, and then when they, they what does he say? Like we w- made you as well as we could make well you. As well as we could make you, and without missing and a says, beat, the time not to but last. Not to last. It's so. <laughs> And then Tyrell says, revel in your time. The candle that burns twice as brightly burns half as long. It, and you have burned so very brightly. Oh, it's so... Th- that interaction is so it's got that poetic. sort of pride. Yeah. You've burned so brightly. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh. And then, I mean, obviously Roy's <laughs> monologue at the end is is staggering. The delivery, the, the emotion oh. with the, the rain coming yeah, down. You can't Just, tell if it's emotion providing the, the pauses... Or his He's shutting shutdown, down. or both. Right. It, it's just. And our introduction to him is his hand clenching in the phone booth. Mm. And he says, Not yet. Time enough. Mm-hmm. Have enough for what he has to do. And so it all kind of culminates at the end. I had missed that in that first reveal. That's. 
I mean, obviously you've seen this a lot more than me, but... Yeah. And I think I told you guys the first time I watched this was on a road trip on about a four-inch screen. Oh, God. And That's I was like, way to watch no, it. not at yeah. all. Like, you miss out on so For much. For such a visual spectacle, right. this one needs a bigger screen. Yeah, I had the pleasure and honor of seeing this in 4K on a theater screen Yeah, at the Alamo Draft House. You and with John, right? Yeah, they did 4K showings for when 2049 was upcoming and... I don't think I necessarily had the money at the time. Tickets weren't that expensive. Right. I mean, Alamo's great. I love their pricing. But with one of those, like, it's been a tight month. Nope, don't care. We I bought go. that ticket. Yeah. I bought that ticket. <laughs> that was from that opening shot, Joel. Like you said, seeing that on a big screen just floored me. I, it, it's breathtaking. Every time. I forget. Like, I mean, it, it's just so... And you don't see it that long. It's not a long shot. Like, no. it, I don't know. It's 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 one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen on film. Is that opening shot? And I, what I, I was thinking to be the guy to bring up Matrix this episode, like what I when seeing that cityscape Joel's made me again. It, yeah, it made <laughs> me think of what the world actually looks like in the Matrix. Mm -hmm. This hugely industrial like horror world oh right? yeah, yeah right? There's no, there are no creature comforts because there are right. machines living there so it's it, kind of like it, this, it I saw some place. some parallel there like also like the idea that the earth is decaying underneath all of it like mm -hmm. it's still yeah people have left this because the earth is the the shitty place to live now right yeah. like so it, it just it's just interesting to to draw that line of like the parallels of where this inspired new sci-fi mm -hmm. you know and then uh, something I was noticing about the music in this one and it's interesting to talk about this film in comparison to Star Wars as we've done before sure. the the music in this is doesn't seem as derivative as John Williams scores for Star Wars are from the planets right mm. so that thank you for saying that that connected <laughs> well, thank I, you for admitting to that no it is I, anybody who has listened to the planets mm -hmm is going to see the influences. Like, there's there's no question, mm -hmm. right? So Or hear the influences. Right, yeah. <laughs> but in this, uh, what I was... I don't know if I'm just not as well-versed in scoring, but it has a very unique sound, mm -hmm. and it, the way... Because there's little, little kind of... Um, you feel 80s, like, saxophone themes come through, and there's piano that comes through in a certain way, but it's got kind of this what you were saying like the near future like connecting the dots it feels yeah. like the natural progression of those things but that open the opening score is so unique it doesn't it, it seems completely new for this kind of film mm -hmm. to me I, it, yeah. it didn't seem as derivative of like even uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey I mean that's those are mostly orchestral pre-existing yeah. right like mm -hmm. the, the overture is new to the film Right, two thousand one. Yeah, isn't it? I don't think so. No, okay. Wait, well, like the opening, like with the sunrise. Yes. Like, yeah, that's Strauss. Oh, it's Strauss. So yeah. then, yeah. So like they're taking stock mm -hmm. stuff, and this this felt really new, and it added another yeah. layer to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, to be fair, I mean the you know different intended goals for no, the for sure, music. right, right. Like, but yeah, I, I agree completely. That felt it felt so. The music similarly did what the what the branding did. It took what we've seen around us and posited a future version right. of it, but still felt familiar. Mm -hmm. You know, like we I'm can looking tell. Looking forward to hearing this theme. <laughs> yeah, you know, we can tell. Oh, this music is like. Oh, this is the 
<laughs> the romance scene music or, or <laughs> quotation, quotation marks, marks yep. yeah. Yeah. or oh this is a chase scene music or this is this music but like you can tell partly because it's happening on screen but partly because that's the emotion that drums up in you but it's not anything you've heard before you know it's it's not not the chase music from uh, uh, I had it in my head and I lost it. it not the chase music from some other film you've watched or um mm-hmm. Or the the action music as Luke swings over the cavern with Leia, or what have you. It's it's different, but it evokes the same feel. Mm-hmm. Serves the same purpose to the film, right. and have, helps add to the film's whole feeling of a, a new combination. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I noticed. Like, yeah, Joel, you mentioned the saxophone. Like to me, that was like probably the most noiry part of the script. Right. Yep. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the few like acoustic instruments we get as opposed to all the electronic stuff. Yeah. Like I think there are like the chimes and stuff like that and it almost sounds like um, one time like a harp or like something. But um, but yeah, and I remember thinking because we had just sort of like kind of prepped ourselves for that scene. Like I think you said, okay, here comes the robot rape scene. And I remember when the saxophone comes on, I remember thinking, yeah. oh, no, it's okay, because the, the saxophone sex means it's sexy. Right. You know, it's like uh, it was almost meant to be like, this is a love scene. Uh-huh. You know, like it was it was trying to, to tell us that because what was going on on screen wasn't wasn't okay. But it was like, no, no, it's okay. There's saxophone. It's right. sexy, you know. And in, um, intentional or not, it's a great juxtaposition mm-hmm. nowadays right. against yeah. what's going on on screen. Yeah. It, um, it's, it adds to the discomfort we feel. Yeah. Right. Well, especially like you were saying, like that, even though it's a shitty thing, that's the first time he seems like human. To the first human outside act. Outside of logic. And that's yeah. when you get this this very human instrument that comes in, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, and like I said, the, the very noir part of it where it's like, oh, yeah, like it almost could have been that was derivative of something you almost could have taken a recording from any other noir film and just plop that saxophone right. whatever saxophone solo was playing in that love scene we're going to plop that in here you know mm-hmm. um and i think one of the one of the things that makes the music very different is because most of it's electronic but it's it's good electronic you know yeah. and I, was, I was i was thinking <laughs> yeah. a lot about that like what you know and w- one of the obvious things i thought of is like a lot of electronic music that's from that sort of the dark ages of the 80s it's all (laughs) this like dance pop music (laughs) you know and you get a lot of these kind of like quirky kind of you know very rhythmic goofy kind of sounds it's also saturated right yeah this is kind of like peppered in like it's very well it's also more like they're they're way more drones it's more atmospheric right i think to me was the big thing i noticed because i remember like in preparation for working on the theme i was listening to some of the music and yeah so much of it is just like this stretched out like atmospheric where you'll have a drone and then this little melody that comes in and then space and then another little thing so so i think that's a lot of the thing that helps it that it isn't this sort of like you know like okay this is ridiculous yeah um the score that worked so well for the terminator would not have worked well here (laughs) yeah um but and, and I also feel like, you know, in the, the, the difference, like you were saying, the difference between like two thousand one and Star Wars versus this, um, you know, I almost feel like the the electronic element lends itself to the idea of this this mix between human and machine, you know. Whereas like in Star Wars, like yes, they have droids, but they're very clearly robots and these are the humans, you know. And then, you know, like in, in two thousand one, you know, again, we still have this this difference between like okay there's this ai that's kind of messing everything up but it's 
it's it's far removed from from the human characters mm-hmm. um and it's almost like you're more you know you're still scoring for the humans whereas with this you're scoring for the place maybe they're humans maybe they're machines we don't really know and, and the, mm-hmm. the, the machines are more like humans and the humans are more like machines because they're just so regimented and all this stuff and and they're not enjoying life they're just living and survive so it's kind of like to me it kind of brought that together Whereas, like, yeah, if you had an orchestral score for this, it would have ruined it. It would have made it too human, you right. know. Whereas the the electronic element makes it makes the whole thing almost, and I don't mean this as an insult, but almost artificial, you know. Mm-hmm. But but in a sense of like, yeah, like like the, um, and maybe artificial is a bad word, but, no, but, but, but you know, of, as of you've created, said, yeah. of manufactured, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and as you've said that these. You know, these people who are actually humans are almost living more like machines. You know, there's no joy in their life. Yeah. There's no, there's no similar... creature comforts. It's like you just do your job, and I don't <laughs> care if it's raining on your fucking head. You do your job, and you do this, and okay, I gotta eat some noodles. Okay, now I gotta yeah. go back to work. You know, and it is a similar moment with Roy when he tells Pris that the other two are dead, and he looks. You know, she asks what's wrong, and he like avoids her gaze, and you know he looks pained, and instead of saying Leon and Zora. He can't say it, so he says there are only two of us now, and it's very human. Mm-hmm. But it's not because the way he avoids her gaze is like his eyes—they move too precisely mm-hmm. from point to point to point that humans mm-hmm. don't do. Right. And just it's clearly a an almost there sort of an, a combination of programming and mimicry, unintentional mm-hmm. right. mimicry. Right. Yeah. That's almost there, but there's just that one piece that says we, we recognize this mm-hmm. as grief as emotional difficulty delivering this bad news to mm-hmm. the person he cares about but it's not quite there it steps into the uncanny valley mm-hmm. sorry it's, you seem to say the music does does a similar thing of that it's right yeah oh yeah this is I know what this is but mm-hmm. not quite <laughs> yeah hmm. oh can we just talk my yeah. favorite shot maybe in any movie ever <laughs> is Deckard taking his shot of vodka yeah. and the continuity of the blood from his lips slipping his into lips it slips and the, the way glass. it curls under in the glass. Oh, it, <laughs> yeah. as, as I said when we were watching this, when I was re-watching the film that Scott let me borrow, that scene was what made me say, oh, this is why Scott loves this film so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but you said that to me, right? As we were building up to that scene, I looked over and Joel was writing in the notebook. So I hit him on the <laughs> hey, shoulder hey, and was hey. like, look up! Because <laughs> I knew he loved it. Oh, man. It's something so... I don't know. It, it, it's it's kind of a mundane, real... Rea- like, if you're bleeding and you're drinking, it's that's scary. going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... It's a very. It's, it's so cinematic. Like yeah. you couldn't do that on purpose. It's this mm-hmm. single wall of light, which is the brightest thing we've seen in the film, basically to this mm-hmm. point. Deckard against it, basically just profile and shadow, and the glass and it's vodka, so it's clear. The light comes through, and as he takes his drink, the the one he wanted to take after the first, the first kill, let alone after his near death experience with Leon, right. you know, getting beat up. And as he puts it to his mouth, the blood suits back in to remind us of what happened and go, oh, it's got to stink. That, that is very noir. That if you're a noir protagonist, you've got to get hurt and it's got to be visibly painful. <laughs> it's going to be blood or You get a drink to Chinatown, medicate. he gets the knife in his nose. Yeah. And, uh, even 2049, the Blade Runner sequel, he gets those bandages for the, for the last right. bit of the film. Yeah. It's beat up pretty badly. 
I, it's so that that just that's sort of the pinnacle of the the noir protagonist's wounds yeah. for me. <laughs> um. mm-hmm. And then he goes to wash his his face and his mouth out in the sink and spits the water out, and it's all just red. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I think I said this with fugitives. Like the man just looks good beat up. Like it, it, it's it's <laughs> poor Ford. It's such a strange quality. Like he looks good in gore. Like it, yeah. it's he's rugged. Yeah, he's rugged. That's that's Daniel Craig has the same thing. Like, yes, absolutely. Looks good beat up. He has a ruggedness to him. Idris Elba, I would argue, has the same. I just don't want to see him beat up. We've talked about this. My <laughs> yeah. man crush is way too strong. I just I want to see him suffer. I don't, yeah. I don't know that I've seen him beat up yet. Is he in? I mean, imagine in Luthor. There's yeah. Luther, I guess. Is. Yeah, Luther's pretty, pretty great. Which is the British TV series he's in, where he plays a uh, is he detective? detective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Hey, look, more noir. <laughs> um, I wonder. Let me see what else. Because I've definitely seen him punched up a bit. Tom Hardy looks pretty good. Yes, he does. Too, doesn't he? If they would let people see his face. <laughs> well, I mean, I was thinking about the Cray legend. The oh, there's the that. Yeah. And oh, in Bron- Bronson, in Bronson, which yeah. will be coming soon. Yeah, yeah. I'm making you guys watch that one. Like, oh, Tom Hardy. So good. So good. Um, you know, I keep forgetting that Idris Elba is Heimdall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or was Heimdall, yeah. I guess. But, Spoilers, um, Infinity War. Uh, <laughs> but as far as uh, him looking beat up, Dark Tower was the oh. thing I saw most recently, oh, where okay. he sustains gotcha. wounds. Huh. So, as the main character in that. So, so just to, to pivot, um, yeah. the death of Pris yes. is really disturbing in this. Yes. And I, I forget every time that the way he shoots her causes her to seize and spasm. Like a broken machine. Like a broken machine. And it's like... And scream and scream. And you've kind of seen Deckard more and more affected by each of these deaths this time because he's yeah. like, am I killing my own kind? Right? And this last and if not, one... not, am I killing something alive like me? Right. Because it deserves to die. Right. And that is like the the manifestation of his worst fear is like... It's in pain. Yeah. Like it's... Like you but kind of... But we see an act of, of... A little bit of an act of humanity in that he... He shoots her a few more times, right? Tries to, to end, really put, it, end put it. her down and end that suffering, because if he was at his normal, you know, when he kills Zora, she hits the pavement, and then he's just, you know, tells the cop, "Hey, I'm a Blade Runner, I'm a veg," and then he just he walks away, right. done. There's nothing there. With Pris, he puts her out of that potential misery. And it's really like it's a disturbing image. Yeah. It, it's this this. Schism. I don't. I don't know. It, if it, I could, could toot my own horn for a moment to the people who say that Deckard is not a good Blade Runner, he kills two of the three Blade Runners that get killed in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Blade Runners, replicants. He he finds them basically on his own, right. except for Leon. He hunts them down really effectively. He walks the street, and he kills Zora and Pris successfully. And in Pris's case, in particular, they get in a bit of a fight. He just wins it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, he is he is good at his job. That's why he's here. He's the well, that's the other thing. Guy. Like in the past, they weren't looking to fight Nexus Sixes. Yeah, they right? mentioned that so these are new. The, this yeah. like his his skill with this model of replicant is unprecedented because they've never had to fight. Yeah. 
Plus, he's probably old and out of practice to a degree. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. if he when he was in his prime, he was a great Blade Runner, and he's got to be what like in his thirties at least, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, you know, and how long has it been since he's had to go do that to go you know chase after something which is you know yeah potentially stronger than him and you know harder to kill than he is. You know? mm-hmm. There's that the whole there at the beginning they have that Voight Kampf test which measures emotional response which determines replicants from humans. And the whole beginning thing is they have a Nexus 6 over at Tyrell. You need to go put the machine on it because we need to know if this works on these new models. Like that's how, how new they are, basically. And not that the Nexus 6s haven't been around, but that the, the rogue Nexus 6s have been few and far between. That's that whole, Holden's good, put him on it. We did. He could still breathe okay, as long as no one unplugs him. Oh, like that's the uh, uh, um, the Blade Runner at the beginning of the film, right? No, but yeah. the the um, <laughs> the the commissioner guy, who's yeah, like right, a uh, John C. Riley type before there was a John <laughs> C. Riley. What did you call him, Tim? He's like Ron Howard's brother, but well, Michael. The, the, well, the replicant guy, which the, oh yeah, 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 oh Leon, yeah, yeah. Leon. Yeah. Le- yeah, Leon is what was it the Ron Howard's brother is to Ron Howard as as Leon is to um, Michael, Michael Keaton. Keaton. <laughs> so just like yeah, like a like older, uglier version. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for watching through this movie with me. It's a long one. Yeah, the, it is. the final cut for sure is it's pretty lengthy, but um, it didn't feel that long though. No, this I, time. Thank it you. Didn't. I, I it, it, yeah. When you go in, if you're expecting an actiony movie, like the film moved slowly, so mm-hmm. that's gonna hurt. Yeah. But when you know you're in for a film that doesn't move at a breakneck pace, yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. despite taking its time, it still moves along nicely. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like we're lingering for too long. Plus the other thing is like point. it's long, but it's interesting to look at. Yeah, it's full. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Every moment is worthwhile. Actively watching this, is, it makes it brisk like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. You all, so. It's always good to rewatch this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, of course I would say that. So, should we move on to situational movie recommendations? Yes. Our longest reoccurring segment for which none of us are ever prepared. Yes. <laughs> Does that mean if one day we're all prepared, we've ruined the length of the recurring segment? It's over. Yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> the I, rain is so done. I'm going to never prepare. And uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Listener. Uh, Does anybody have one? No. We're not prepared, Joel. You said it yourself. Okay. Okay, this isn't necessarily a situational recommendation. It's another one of my weird ones, but it's sort of a... I I need to phrase it properly here, but... What is, like, the film that you still watch, even though... I guess just the scene that made a whole film worthwhile for you. Like a film that you otherwise don't like, but there are one or two pieces that are just enough that you will go back and watch it again. Okay. Does that make I sense? Have mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, get in and go, please. So I've watched it for the first time, Last House on the Left, which is ah. this 1973 gruesome, terrifying, just some of the most depraved awful humans doing things to these teenage girls but and it's a movie I watched until the first two acts and I'm like I am never gonna watch this piece of shit again because it's like 
painful and I don't want to watch this or put myself through it. And then there's a third act shift, and I don't know if I want to spoil it for you guys, but... I mean, I don't care. Yeah, for it. Okay, fine. Spoilers for Last yeah. South is on the left. You should probably watch it. It's great. I know I just said something that contradicts <laughs> that. But in so they do these things to this girl who's went out to a concert with her friend, and they this group of uh, criminals who's escaped from prison have just abused her and beaten her and brutally murdered her. And they end up staying at the girl's parents' house. And then the parents oh, find out what they did. Yes. And the parents I, fucking you know murder what? I them. I have seen this. It's I a spectacular. the title completely. Oh but my I god. I saw that. Oh my god. So, it, like as I said, as soon as you said I'm, they stay at her parents' house, I was like, wait a second. Right. <laughs> so, like, I'm dis- disgusted. Claw it's hammer just... and garbage disposal? Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, it, it just was like. I'm disgusted. Why would I watch this ever again? Why do people watch this? Why do they praise this? As And then it shifts. And it's like all of the, the vulgarity and the violence that comes from these criminals is inverted into the domestic, like, nuclear family. And the reaction to that ugliness mm-hmm. is the same, if not worse, on the other side of the spectrum. It's such a great shift. I, I yeah, that, that totally turned that around. And it starts with a dream sequence because one of them's a, mm-hmm. like the dad's a doctor, mm-hmm. so one of the criminals is having a nightmare where he's imagining the parents like putting them under and then taking out their teeth with chisels and a hammer. Oh. And so I was like, oh. "This took a left turn." And then I, I was live. Te- I was texting John, the site runner, as <laughs> I'm watching because he had recommended. It. I was like. This just turned left, like, yeah. and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you're into it now, boy." So it yeah. was, it, it's, yeah. Thank you for giving me an excuse to keep with my theme of using two films in my yeah, answers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But um, in terms of a film, I don't want to watch again because it was uncomfortable, even though it was a good film, mm-hmm. which seems to be what you're saying about Last House on the Left. Yeah. Was um, Life is Beautiful. Oh, okay. Which, not necessarily because it was uncomfortable, but because it was heartbreaking, mm-hmm. emotionally destroying, just right. open weeping sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful, amazing film, but I don't know if I could ever do it again. I've done it twice. Um, but then, in answer to my, my regular question, um, it's Flyboys with... Uh, which Franco brother is in that? Is it Dave? Uh, who cares? It's, it's <laughs> Flyboys. It's a World War One dogfighting film. That makes and it's me think a so. complete mess. As in, like, it's like ten scripts that they crammed into one, and they had a whole bunch of tropes they wanted to shove into, and, like, the romance of the pilot and the farm girl, but then we only have enough time to do three scenes of that because we also want to do the the guys on the airfield and the stereotype about the ones and the lists and only killers can sit here. I mean, it, it just crams everything you've ever thought was ever cool in a war-related movie into one, into one movie, and it doesn't have nearly enough runtime to give any of it space to breathe. Okay. It feels like it was multiple scripts crammed together because sometimes things are just picked up at random or dropped. It's really it's a tragic film because the things that they did, they did so damn well. Mm-hmm. You know, the sets and the acting and all that jazz is well, sometimes the acting, sometimes not. It's <laughs> so great that like if it had just stayed coherent it would have been glorious. Yeah. But the thing I keep going back for honestly is the dogfights, is the action. Sometimes it's a little physics defined, but oh my god, is it glorious to look at. That's cool. what I put on. Yeah. I found it for two bucks in a place that was going out of business, got the DVD, and I just queue up the dogfights. Nice. So, How long is that movie? 
Let's find out. It's I literally it'll be, sitting here on the table. It'll be on our uh, watch list here pretty soon, I imagine. Point. I I'm torn because, as I said, I I don't I don't watch it all the way through again. I, I see. On. You like get <laughs> I to skip those to the parts, uh, right? Uh, so let's see. Maybe that could be a cycle when we, if we're short on time. What's one part of a movie that you'll watch <laughs> and not the whole movie? Let's watch just that part and talk about that. Just that part. So Strange Things I'm Bad At is finding the runtime on the back of the it's DVD It's a different box. place on every Here we box. go. 139 minutes. Okay. Oh, so it's not the shortest film. No, it's not. But it doesn't have, doesn't have enough time to give space to breathe for every piece in it. Which Franco is it? Yeah, it's, it's the elder Franco. James. James, there we go. Yeah, so some of those of you who obviously know who James Franco is and are now hearing about this film, you're like, I've never heard of that. There's a reason. There's a reason. Um, so, is there anybody else of note? Yeah, please, in that's it? what I was going to look at. Please, uh, you'll want to maybe check the back. Uh, I'll queue it up on IMDb while you're doing that. <laughs> I love how James Franco's uh, parenthetical credit is Spider Man 3 in this. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody this, else is so this listed. This film was 2006. Not, not the Spider Man trilogy, but Spider Man 3 specifically. <laughs> this was pretty far back. There's a. Uh, Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, you know? <laughs> Jean, Jean Renault? Jean Renault? Yeah, I recognize his yeah. face. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's the guy from like, the, the Professional. And... Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That looks like a, a hot mess. But, <laughs> a hot fun mess. I'm not sure I recognize anybody here. This is great podcast content. Us yeah, looking at IMDb <laughs> silently. <laughs> oh, that, might, that guy is in it. So, yeah, <laughs> that was Fly fake. Boys I wasn't is, even looking at it, listener. <laughs> Flyboys is also, a, like I said, it's a bit tragic because it could have been so great. Mm-hmm. You know, there's. It, it touches on themes that work well on their own. And, and the planes were. If I recall correctly, most a huge chunk of their budget just went into building actual planes that they would film gotcha. for most of these scenes. Like actual, almost replicas. Um, they used a different kind of engine because just there's a reason we're using yeah. different kinds uh-huh. of engines nowadays. And Reliability so, right, and safety. Um, but, but uh, it, yeah, I mean, so it all, a lot of the flying is, you know, real, not, not cheap green screen. And it, it's definitely my, like, what could have been film. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. Yeah. Tim, do you have one? Yeah, I think for me it's Phantom Menace. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. Uh, what's what's the scene? The the lightsaber fight, with Darth Maul and. <laughs> oh and, man. Uh, you don't Kenobi like the pod race. I don't. I'm. I. I wasn't a child when it came out. Oh, so. ouch. Ouch. <laughs> well, no. Wow, I'm saying, no, I'm not pain. saying. It's, I mean, oh. if you were a child when it came out, and you're right like, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Like, it's. I don't know. I mean, it's just. I like, will say, going back as an adult, the pod race is still half entertaining because the race bit is great, but then when they keep cutting back to their dialogue, it's a little bit like. Just, just shove that away and just give me a special yeah. effects racing because that would have been mm-hmm. that on well, its own I think still holds up but you're right it's interspersed with yeah and I mean maybe with, you know okay stuff. like t- to be fair okay like I, I didn't grow up playing like Mario Kart and stuff like that and no, I feel like that's no. a big part of it too is more I so never than, even thought of that. Than, than your age is maybe yeah like if you've played a lot of racing games or Mario Kart like those type of things which I didn't really. So there was there was like zero connection to that scene for me. Like I don't gotcha. care that these things are moving fast. Like I've never had a desire to take part in that. I've never done it on any sort of virtual level. I've no, you know I don't I don't even think I watched a lot of you know car racing movies at that point. You know? huh. It was that just is kind an of interesting. Like, yeah. 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 
So I, I'm sorry. I please you. You were talking about mm-hmm. the lightsaber fight, of course. So yeah. Well, no, no. I mean, awesome. that's, yeah. So well, and that's the thing is, like, I feel like nobody needs to have that explained to this. Like, okay. oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a great yeah. scene. Yeah. yeah. But like, so much of it leading up to that, and and to be fair, also just like that was it Jake Lloyd? Is that the the, the characters? Like, yeah, you're just okay. terrible. Like every line of dialogue he says is terrible. You know. Woohoo! And like now this, this is, is pod racing. Yeah, and it's like. Yeah, so just so, yeah, so Have much we of it ever, is just like we've talked before about how you can make things that are for kids but also for adults. Yeah. About like the last Airbender TV I was just series say, yeah, does that a really well. Example. I feel like the original trilogy did that pretty damn well too. But that by the time we get to the prequel trilogy, they sort of lost their grip on that. You know? Yeah, well, I'm, because I mean, the original trilogy was huge with kids. Like, we can't pretend it wasn't. All right, the toy, the toy phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Kids I was there. Loved those movies. I bought but the those. thing is, I have so a Jar Jar Binks toy. They were done in that mm-hmm. way that appeals to both to every age group, yeah. and that it sort of they they lost their grasp on it when they made the prequels. Yeah, it, I imagine that will be a cycle at some point. Star Wars cycle. No, we'll probably prequel just a prequel cycle. one. Sure. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's just yeah. I mean, so so it's not yeah. It's not just the pod racing part, but it, yes, yeah, it's, it's everything else around mm. it. It's just like, you know, watching watching Anakin and Padme talk to each other, knowing these two are gonna <laughs> fuck at some point, right? You know, and it's Ooh, just like yeah, what the fuck, was... like what? You know, it's like it's it's and know, not and to I, not I, to disparage I, Natalie Portman, but keeping her from one to two was uncomfortable. Because if they had gone with a different actress so that both characters had undergone this dramatic like visual shift yeah. and growth, mm-hmm. I think I might have been more comfortable. Yeah. But having her look three days older yeah. and him be suddenly Hayden Christensen, yeah. was that was off-putting, I will admit. It's just like... There's so many issues, <laughs> right? Sorry. No, just... That, that is a reason to watch that movie. That's a right. great yeah. finale until the end. Yeah. Oh, CG Yoda was... T- oh, no, that... Wait, was that the puppet? That was still the puppet, but it was a terrible puppet. Yeah, it was... That a was a terrible puppet Yoda. Jar Jar Binks, like... You know... Um, but, yeah. But, yeah, then it all kind of comes together, and it's just like, holy shit. Like, yes, this is... Like, I think I mentioned this before in a previous podcast. Like, there was one time... It was before Force Awakens was coming out, and I was like, I need to clean my apartment. I'll put on episode right. one yep. while I clean my apartment... And then sit down to watch that scene, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. <laughs> I, I, I like that all. we hit on. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad I got to clarify. Like, not no, just making you. it be like only children like that. But, but yeah, no, I think it, it's. I think it's a generational thing. Like, there That's was definitely a, a point insight. where Absolutely. I think, like, yeah, like Mario Kart started and became a thing that I think a lot of people like across the board, or those types of things, or whatever, or even like Smash Brothers and other. Like, I don't play those type of games a lot of the times either so i feel like if they ever did something along those lines people would be like oh this is great it reminds me of this thing i like this video game style i play all the time and i'm just like or like mortal kombat was a good example ah. like that movie i kind of i actually liked the movie more than the game because the movie actually had somewhat of a story <laughs> right Whereas the game of just like two characters fighting each other they've infinitely. added kind of like a lot story to the mode, newest but, mortal kombat yeah. games oh, okay. there's an actual there, campaign you play through and isn't there like a dc fight injustice game that's like, yeah because yeah. so they like did it with injustice first yeah. so then they added it for mortal kombat 10 yeah. mm-hmm. and it's yeah which works much better yeah um but it to i say that also because it lends validity to your complaint mm. so yeah it's yeah. crazy because like specifically the pod race is like that was one of the first video games i ever played was Star Wars Racer, right? Mm-hmm. Like getting to play as so. There's this whole, there's a huge amount of nostalgia in just 
pod racing as a concept for mm-hmm. me. Like the Lego sets were massive and cool. Right. Like I always really wanted Sebulbas, but it was like two hundred and fifty dollars. I was never gonna afford it. Like <laughs> so like it's it's interesting that that kind of was my in into it. Yeah. And just not not you're not a thing for you. That's interesting. Well, I feel like, and it's funny too, because I, I like I feel like maybe in I don't know if you have to do this in like, the, but I play the the Star Wars Lego games, mm-hmm. and I almost wonder if like the, I feel like there's maybe some point in Episode One where you have to do the pod race, and I'm I like whenever I get to like in games like that, it's like, fuck, I don't want to do this. Like if I wanted to race. I do a racing game like right. I'm trying to do like an RPG like I want to go through and like talk to people and find clues and right. solve puzzles and I want to do a fucking lightsaber. racing game yeah. that I can't get through until I win this fucking race you know right. and it's like stuff like that always frustrates me because I'm not good at those I don't like them you know and it's like I don't want to have to get good at it you know right. like give me some sort of cheat code so I can skip this level and just move on with the story lots of games fall into that trap of let's add something else That'll be a nice, nice break, mm. but it's so completely not what the rest of the game is that it instead becomes this huge difficulty hurdle. Right. Mm. Yeah. Like the Batmobile parts of freaking Arkham Knight. Same. Sorry, that's a whole nother thing. I, well, see, I didn't have too much trouble with those parts, but I, I spend heaps of time playing car-related vehicle but video that's games. The thing. Like, so I, it's Batman. I don't want to yeah. drive a car. I'm glad we <laughs> finally can drive the car, but I don't want it to be the whole game. Have yeah. To, yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that was a good question. I like that a lot. It should be like the horse in Zelda, where it gets you from place to yeah. place faster, but not Rapid like, well, you've got to do all this stuff. That's what they do for the bat it. wing. Like, uh, it's... Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <Yeah. laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Good question. Well. Great yeah, movie. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all for, for joining me, for watching that. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Thank so you, listeners, for, for joining us once again. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. You're on the Harrison Ford podcast. I, right? um, if you Tim. do, I, we didn't end up talking about the different versions of Blade Runner, and I'm not going to go into that now, but I will just say that if you have wish to seek one out, watch the final cut. Not the None of the theatrical cuts, the director's cut, the work print, but whatever. The final cut. That's yeah. the one. Mm-hmm. Which is actually pretty universally agreed upon, unlike Tony Darko was. Right. Um, and, and there is a director's cut and a final cut, and they are two different things. Right. So, like the final cut. Uh, next up will be episode 15, the conclusion of our favorite films cycle. And Tim will be picking. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to kind of break break the cycle because Tim can't pick The Matrix because Harrison <laughs> Ford isn't in it. Yeah. And it has to, obviously, this is now the Harrison Ford cycle. Uh, too bad. To, no, I'm sorry. So please, Tim, your favorite film. Oh, The Matrix. What a surprise. It's going to be a long episode. I feel like <laughs> three hours later. I've, I've already talked about it so much. We shouldn't even watch it. together. I'm just going to cut together everything. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of the other episodes. Uh, well, that would be a monster be qu- for you to yeah. try to do. Well, I feel like it would be quicker than the actual discussion. I'll buy you a bottle of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to punch it. me in the nose. Yeah. <laughs> Get the effect. Uh, <laughs> So that'll be our next episode. Uh, yeah. so I, I, you know, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, what the whole spirit of this is is I'm, I'm anxious to watch it with you guys or excited mm-hmm. to watch it with right. you guys because, like, you know, kind of, I, I, you know, I know this has happened at least to me with a few things, like, like, well, with Blade Runner specifically, like I had seen it before, didn't appreciate it, but after kind of, you know, well, even before watching it this time, but like talking to Scott about it and kind of seeing the things to appreciate. Um, you know, it's, it's made me enjoy the film better. So. And that's why I'm excited, because I was always sort of lukewarm about The Matrix. Yeah, I think a lot of people and were. I'm yeah. really excited to, to 
share the passion. Yeah. You know, you guys have, have turned me around on a number of things we've watched, even during this podcast. Mm-hmm. And on other things that I already liked, you've just made them better. So I'm, I'm super excited. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. Sounds good. Uh, we hope you'll be back with us next month, uh, listeners. I almost said viewers. Wow, what's wrong with me? And uh, are you a replicant? Yeah, <laughs> what was your emotional response? What's a tortoise. To yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, we hope you'll join us all next month, listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners, we appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes. If you'd like to check us out there, I'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official NerdsLitGeek emails, which you can find on the bio page at NerdsLitGeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at Scott underscore W underscore Murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at JoelT18. And on Instagram, I'm TheTimGerard. And on Twitter, I'm at TimGerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more.